As millennials continue to age, it's interesting, at least to me, to see how mass media shifts in order to pander to us. One curious development is that, in 2020, a sequel to Troop Beverly Hills was announced. Not a reboot, a decades later sequel that maintains continuity with the original Troop Beverly Hills. <laughs> I have no idea if it's still a going concern. The pandemic caused a lot of things to spin out in Hollywood, but, well, it's still remarkable that someone in power looked at a decades later Troop Beverly Hills movie and saw money in it. True Beverly Hills was a disaster. It was often framed as a cautionary tale. It was seen as a symbol of Shelley Long's hubris for leaving Cheers at the height of its popularity to become a movie star and how that crashed and burned hard for her. So the fact that it remains in the hearts and minds of the people who grew up with it is something of a turnaround and I'm hoping it's something that Shelley Long looks back on with a degree of pride nowadays. Millennials love Troop Beverly Hills, and from what I could gather, the Gen Z kids see it as a signpost of a simpler, more idyllic past. To some people, it's a goddamn Norman Rockwell painting now, which strikes me as very odd. So, we're going to be talking about this very girly cult movie from the 80s and how it informs our sensibilities now. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me on this one is my brother Sylvan, this is his pick. Hello. Also present is Cheryl. I'm here. And also, since Cheryl's husband Pete sat in on the movie, Cheryl was able to twist his arm into attending. So, welcome back to the show, Pete. Been a while. Hi. You were last here for Puppet Master, <laughs> so great. you're just here for all the winners. The yeah, greatest think, movie ever made. I think this is the first time we've actually done one of these together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. First Sylvan Pete episode. Wow, really? Pretty sure. Yeah, I can't think of one where you're, you're both odd, on. because we do this once a week at your house. I am a shut-in. <laughs> it's very hot today, and he had to come out. Yeah, yeah, he's usually, like, gaming or something, but that's a tiny-ass room. She's like, you know what, I'll watch this jelly movie. All right, so, um, Sylvan, why does True Beverly Hills mean something to you? You kind of nailed some of it. I'm a millennial. I thought I was a girl in the 80s and 90s, albeit not very good at being one. But uh, this was on at Sleepovers, and, you know, it's obviously not a very intense or serious movie. It's very safe. It's got its own logic going on. And the themes of friendship and looking out for each other and the Barbie doll clothing are all things that appealed to me. Youthful, nostalgic fondness. You wanted to mention uh, that you had it on physical media, but a very specific kind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I bought a cheap-ass DVD off of Amazon because I wanted to see it, and it came in a slumber party pack with the Babysitter's Club movie. The 90s Babysitter's Club movie, which I'm not a Babysitter's Club person, it's but... It's the only Babysitter's Club movie. Yeah. There have been two TV shows, too. I've been led to believe that the Babysitter's Club fandom is not particularly fond of the 90s movie. I mean, I wasn't. I don't know how representative I am of other Babysitter's Club nerds. I think the best adaptation to date has been the Netflix show. I'm surprised you haven't made us do some of that yet. I mean, I would like to. We'll get to it. But first, plot recap of Troop Beverly Hills. Our main character is Phyllis Neffler, who is a wealthy socialite who was recently separated from her husband, Freddie, the wealthy owner of an auto shop chain. He's the muffler man. And she's Neffler, a... muffler, Neffler. <laughs> and she's a fashion icon. 
In an attempt to maintain a relationship with her daughter Hannah during the contentious divorce, Phyllis becomes the den mother of Hannah's unruly, leaderless uh, local Girl Scout troop of Wilderness Girls. Yeah, they're not Girl Scouts, they're Wilderness Girls. Gotta file off those serial numbers. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of that in this, aside from the product placement. Their first campout results in the troop getting caught in a rain squall, prompting Phyllis to take the girls to camp out at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Which, you know, they're roughing it because it's nine people to one bathroom. I also really enjoy the fact that, like, the carpeting is, like, this shaggy olive green rug, so it it is trying to look a little bit like the outdoors. Like, good job whoever came up with that on the set. Despite her lack of wilderness skills, and perhaps motivated to spite her husband, who claims that she never finishes what she starts, Phyllis demonstrates an unwavering commitment to the girl's well-being and becomes a surrogate mother to the troop. Many of the members are from families that neglect them. She resolves to teach the girls how to survive in the wilds of Beverly Hills, scare quotes, even customizing new merit badges for her troop based upon their individual skill sets. Phyllis's unorthodox methods run afoul of another scout leader, Velda Plendor, a mean-spirited retired army nurse who runs the Culver City Red Feathers, of which her own daughter Cleo is a member of. Culver City are like the working class Girl Scout troops. Yeah, I I know Culver City from being where MGM Studios is, so... Yeah, they all rich. Because Velda has considerable influence at the regional council level, she declares Phyllis's customized merit badges ineligible. Although she does not consult with her superiors before doing it, she just kind of says so and everyone takes her word at face value. Well, she's scary. Velda sends her assistant troop leader, Annie Herman, to infiltrate Troop Beverly Hills and sabotage them. But, you know, because she treats Annie like a piece of crap and Phyllis is nice to her, she defects in the third act. Also, Phyllis is generally nice. She's just self-absorbed. She's yep. oblivious. She's she's not mean. Velda and Annie's attempts at sabotage prove unsuccessful, as Velda's boss and regional council leader Francis Temple states that while Phyllis may have unusual methods, she has taken an active interest in the girls and is trying to help them survive their personal environment. Troop Beverly Hills can gain recognition from the regional council by passing a series of tests at the upcoming Jamboree. In order to qualify, the troop needs to sell 1,000 boxes of cookies. To prevent this, Velda one-ups Troop Beverly Hills by selling cookies in their own neighborhood. At this point, this is when Annie breaks ties with Velda and sides with Phyllis. Uh, The troop ends up selling over 4,000 boxes of cookies, more than enough to qualify for the Jamboree, and not by having the wealthy parents buy the cookies, because that would be cheating. Instead, they do fabulous dance numbers. And and a fashion show. And a fashion show. And a, and a really catchy song. Come on now, come on now, it's cookie time. <laughs> All right, if you do more than 30 seconds of the cookie time song, that might be legally actionable on certain channels. <laughs> is it like buying wishes and selling cookie dreams or something like that? That was my favorite line in that whole movie. I was like, yeah, cookie dreams. Don't get me a YouTube strike, damn it. <laughs> At a party for the troop, Velda takes her anger out on Annie, who snaps back, standing up to her superior for the first time. This is also when her ex-husband is kind of floating the idea of getting back together with her. Uh, you mean Phyllis, because you you're, you were talking about Annie and Velda, and that could be confusing. Ah, uh, yeah, yes, I was talking about, uh, yeah, Phyllis's ex-husband, Freddie. Phyllis in that hat made out of tiny hats? <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a B-plot going through the film that's not in the synopsis here where, you know, their contentious divorce is stymied by Freddy getting together with his realtor and possibly remarrying her, and that contributes to the all's lost moment. The all's lost moment happens when um, Freddy, finding that Phyllis is assertive and thinking that she won't take him back, says that the thing he wanted to talk to her about is actually that he wants joint custody of Hannah, at which point she freaks out and just sort of walks into the pool. What an 80s plot. Not even 80s, but like what an old plot. You don't see that anymore. You can solve the divorce by quality time and confidence. Well, we're still at the period where no-fault divorce is very recent and uh, is still treated as a novelty and not like, you know, a good, necessary thing that causes terrible relationships to finally end. (laughs) Another thing that contributes to the all-is-lost moment is Velda pointing out, actually astutely to Phyllis, that, like, the jamboree could be potentially dangerous if you don't have wilderness skills and it is irresponsible for her to take the children into the wilderness like that. We are able to overcome this, believe it or not. This is a feel-good movie. (laughs) It's like, if this was any other universe that was more realistic, that would make perfect sense and Phyllis (laughs) would be the bad guy. Phyllis does try to disband the troop, but Hannah and the other girls change her mind, telling Phyllis that she has given them a new sense of self-esteem. During the Jamboree, the Red Feathers trick troop Beverly Hills during the competition by misdirecting them into a snake-invested swamp, because it is not an 80s cult movie if we're not trying to murder some children. We got some footloose shit going on here. (laughs) Oh my god, that train! (laughs) I will say, I spotted the little girl, her parents, Mrs. Barnfell, is one of the victims from uh, Friday the 13th Part 6. So, yes, there is some child endangerment afoot. (laughs) Fortunately, a skunk scares them into running through a shortcut, making them first for the qualifying event. The next day, Velda cheats again by cutting a rope bridge after her troop crosses and by leading them into a restricted area used only for hunting. However, Velda falls and breaks her ankle. The Red Feathers, now led by Cleo, abandon Velda for the sake of winning. They do leave for some rations. Immediately. They abandon her immediately, without debate. Troop Beverly Hills repairs the bridge, and they find Velda. Tessa diagnoses her broken ankle and a severe personality disorder. The girls reluctantly carry her to the finish line after Phyllis reminds them that they have to be considerate to those in need, especially a fellow wilderness girl they swore an oath after all. Though the Red Feathers cross the finished line first, they are disqualified because their council law stipulates that the leader must be with the troop. Troop Beverly Hills has declared the winners of the Jamboree because they're the next ones to show up. I'm not sure what that other troop was doing. They weren't being sabotaged and they weren't being dicks to like hang around and watch to see how their sabotage was doing. <laughs> I think maybe they were like, hey, somebody cut the rope bridge. That's not safe. Let's go back. <laughs> Instead of walking across that precarious log. <laughs> Anyways, Troop Beverly Hills are, uh, is declared the winners of the Jamboree and are recognized as wilderness girls. Frances fires Velda for cheating and her outburst when she has so much adrenaline she's able to like dance around on that not-quite-broken ankle anymore. Freddie, intrigued by Phyllis's complete turnaround, shows interest in calling off the divorce and they reconcile. Can we pause for one moment and just really lean into the fact that she abandoned her daughter who ran off into the wilderness with a stolen 
fucking trophy. I mean, her daughter abandoned her first, so in her mind, that probably makes it even, right? <laughs> you can just hike your way home. There was like, I wish we had a trophy to give to you, True Beverly Hills. And he's like, that was like an 11-year-old. Just get the trophy back. <laughs> She's gone. I wouldn't cross that troop. <laughs> we'll go to a sports equipment store and buy a new trophy. Oh, and better yet, too, like, she's just like, I might be senile. <laughs> really? <laughs> You're not contesting that? The next year, Troop Beverly Hills is designated poster troop. Velda, on the other hand, is forced to take a job at Kmart after her actions make her virtually unemployable. And a final scene shows her making a store-wide announcement about cookies. This is a running gag. She kept threatening to fire her toady and force her to work at a Kmart. Dun-dun-dun, poetic justice. It's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Actually, retail is probably the worst thing that can happen to someone. (laughs) You're you're looking right at me. Especially if you're, you know, grew up in Culver City. I hate retail. It was so mean. I still work retail. Anyway. Cheryl ain't wrong. (laughs) People are mean to you. The customers aren't, actually. I sell candy. They like candy. All right, development and production for this film. Troop Beverly Hills producer Ava Austin Fries, who is a Girl Scout troop leader in Beverly Hills, felt that her personal experiences would be a fun premise for a movie. After coming up with the basic story threads, Saturday Night Live writer Pamela Norris and another writer named Margaret Greco-Oberman, who doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, were hired to flesh things out into a screenplay. Jeff Canu, best known for directing Revenge of the Nerds, was hired to helm the movie. Well, there's a lot less of that type of content in this one. Yeah, not so much spying on naked women and sexual assaults that is framed as fun nerds having fun. I mean, I've never seen Revenge of the Nerds. I assume I would hate it based on what I do know about it, but I'm not totally shocked. This has some 80s movie tropes and some kind of problematic moments for a children's movie. And it has the same basic underdog premise. The next thing I wanted to bring up is when they were casting, Carla Gugino, who um, plays Chica, she lied about her age during auditions, claiming to be 14 when she was actually 16. She didn't tell Hanu her real age until they were three weeks into shooting, at which point it would be too expensive to replace her. This is very evident. She's at least a head taller than ever all of the other girls. <laughs> and she does have a much more mature looking face. In a not very effective attempt to mask how much older she was than the other girls, Gugino is usually standing in the back of the troupe. She was instructed to slouch during the dance numbers, and at meeting scenes, all of the other girls are propped up on pillows when they're outside of far shots. While the shoot for Troop Beverly Hills was underway, the studio was also making a low-budget corporate video promoting a training program for second assistant directors. During the wilderness uh, finale sequence, one of the girls fell and was injured, and this prompted a second assistant director from the corporate training video to instantly stop what he was doing, pick up the girl, and rush her to a medic. This was caught on film, and after deciding that this would be a perfect addition to the training video, the corporate video crew was assigned to shadow the Troop Beverly Hills production to both save money and also perhaps capture a few more moments of verisimilitude. The corporate video for the second assistant director's training program was still used by Columbia Pictures until at least 2004. (laughs) So they knew it was like potentially dangerous for children. They're like, no, 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 put more cameras on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, having the second assistant directors just around ended up working out, so just have them stick around. (laughs) They were thinking of the children. You think outside the box and child safety. 
The parents of the uh, True Beverly Hills member Lily are modeled after Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, the dictatorial criminal couple that held the Philippines by the throat until they were driven from power in 1986, 20 years into their reign of terror. See, I always felt like there was more going on with that gag than I understood. Yeah, the decadent shoe collection is the most obvious signifier. Imelda's thousands upon thousands of shoes were held up as an especially nasty symbol of the widespread graft of the Marcos regime. Uh, this might have been seen as a dated reference up until a few weeks ago, sadly, as Ferdinand Bong Bong Marcos Jr. somehow recently got elected president of the Philippines, despite his refusal to acknowledge his family's human rights abuses or return the billions that the Marcos family stole from their people. Marcos did restore the Marcos's reputation, however, through a years-long social media disinformation campaign, because that's the sort of thing extreme right-wing nationalists can do in the 2020s. You know, this one was supposed to be a fun podcast. I'm sorry, but these things are... <laughs> this is relevant. Do you think Junior's election is what prompted sequel talks for Troop Beverly Hills? Oh no, Junior got elected as of this recording a few days ago. Oh, okay. The Troop Beverly Hills re reboot was announced in 2020. Although, if they work that into the storyline now, it would be a lot sadder. Because <laughs> in here, it's just like, Hi, Mr. Dictator. Hi, Mrs. Dictator. Oh my god, no, they could do like a dark Troop Beverly Hills. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Like, don't. Like a gritty reboot of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Nobody wants this. <laughs> also in sad news, the studio hired Hanna-Barbera and Filmation animator John Chris Felusi to put together the title sequence. Chris Felusi designed Shelley Long's cartoon figure personally, and he would be hired by Nickelodeon less than a year later to create and produce Ren and Stimpy. I and do th he's an awful pedo. Yes, he used his position at Ren and Stimpy to groom and assault several children. Uh, and that came to light a few years ago. I mean, it's a fun title sequence. Chris Felucci's a talented cartoonist. Uh, you know, you can't. I can't really look at that style and just go, ugh. So anyways, those are the two things about True Beverly Hills that are total fucking bummers. <laughs> I mean, I've never really been a fan of that style. It's just floppy boobs and angry teeth. <laughs> I do like the expressiveness and the minimalism. It makes me think of UPA. But, like, you can go to the Powerpuff Girls Craig McCracken and get that without the floppy boobs and angry teeth. Craig McCracken is also very heavily influenced by UPA shorts. True Beverly Hills has a number of celebrity cameos, uh, notably from Pia Zadora, Robin Leach, Dr. Joyce Brothers, Ted McGinley shows up, uh, we got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Cheech Marin is here, and <laughs> they put him in really soft focus, as if they're supposed to like make him like pretty. I was waiting for the harp music. <laughs> this is your love interest, lady. This is what you get. Uh, we also get Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. They cameo as joggers. Funicello was singing her 1959 pop hit Tall Paul during that bit. That's why it was so sweet. I thought she was just happily cheering on her spouse or whoever that was. <laughs> yeah, that's a song she sang when she was a teenager. Oh, that's even cuter. <laughs> Love. <laughs> they, they weren't actually a couple. They just played a couple in beach movies. Consistent work. <laughs> Partnership. Yeah. All right, let's get into the cast of this. First, we have Shelley Long as Phyllis Neffler. She's easily the best part of this. Oh, absolutely. She's wonderful. Her Barbie dresses. 
I also just, again, like, the obliviousness of the character, but the fact that they could have made her go full bimbo and didn't, you know, as part of the point of the character, like, she's competent, she's just been lazy from being uh, excessively wealthy, and the whole point of the movie is that she needs to be stirred up again. I like that she's actually very smart and capable within her skill sets. And I do think that the movie was structured to play to her strengths because she's mostly known for sitcoms and most of the jokes in this movie are very sitcom. Yeah, fair. I did have kind of a realization during one of the scenes. We, we've been watching Shit's Creek with uh, our other sibling who's not here and she, she gives strong Alexis vibes. I wouldn't be surprised if the writers weren't somewhat influenced by this type of character when they created her. I wouldn't have made that connection on my own, but I see it. Yep. Uh, then we have Craig T. Nelson as Freddy. Freddy is very much a stock character here, but Nelson is just so good that he can, he can get a laugh out of even completely vanilla lines. Yeah. Just the way he reacts to, like, basic stuff, and it's just, like, watching him be silly in the muffler suit, and the bit where he opens the jar. Those were delightful. He's a charming, hairy man. <laughs> <laughs> Not on the head, though. <laughs> and uh, I do think that uh, he and Shelley play very well off of each other. Yeah, there was chemistry. Shelley Long is infamous for being able to build chemistry against her romantic leads. That part didn't surprise me. Uh, then we have Betty Thomas as Velda. Uh, this was her last major film role. Afterwards, she switched to directing, and this included the Brady Bunch movie where she cast Long as the mom. So apparently they got along here. She's so delightful as a really two-dimensional villain. Like, this character does not have adequate motivation to hate the children as much as she does, which is a very 80s movie thing, but this actress carries it off delightfully. Um, one of my favorite moments is when she croaks, ANKLE! <laughs> after falling in the bear trap. She's like the trench ball, where you're just like, yeah, I do buy that you hate children. I don't need a reason. As I already pointed out, after they cut the rope bridge, they just hung around to see how their rope bridge stunt worked. They could have just kept going, but no, it, it wasn't, wasn't about, about winning. Yeah. It was about hurting those kids and seeing them fail. <laughs> the wilderness was in them all along. In addition to directing the Brady Bunch movie, some of Thomas's other features include Private Parts, the Howard Stern biopic. Oh, God. The Dr. Doolittle film with Eddie Murphy. Uh, I Spy, also with Eddie Murphy. John Tucker Must Die. And Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakquel. So she's had kind of a diverse uh, career there. Yeah, kind of a journey lady director. All right, then we have Mary Gross as Annie Herman. I feel like she was in a lot of movies when I was growing up as, like, a background character. Yeah, yeah same, like, mousy character. Yeah, she plays it well, and, you know, the bit where she's at the party and she's wearing a dress that reveals her cleave, and she's like, men are noticing me now. It's very cute. <laughs> <laughs> she's got the perfect voice for the type of character she gets cast as, so. Yeah, yeah and it is satisfying hearing her yell out, screw you. All right, then we have Karen Copens as Lisa. Not much to do with that character. <laughs> yeah. She's just kind of there. Yeah, the movie wants us to hate her because, you know, she's Shelley Long's rival, but they didn't earn it. 
I think it would have been more interesting and challenging if she had been a totally likable character because let's face it, in this situation, Freddy's the sleaze bag. Yeah, it's just that you know the movie's treating us like we hate her. It's been established that she's a bitch on wheels, and we just want her to fall off that boat. And he's like, no, you haven't earned that movie. Don't act like you have. I mean, she isn't an excessively likable character, but she's not really in anything. She's just kind of this young girl that a guy having a midlife crisis is sort of taking advantage of. I mean, it's kind of established, too, that they're separated. And that's how they, like, we meet her. She's dating a man that's separated and filed for divorce already. All parties know. A much older man. Getting to marry. Getting to get And wealthy. And silver. Muffler and, man. And muffler. <laughs> it was the muffler that did it for her. I'm just creeped out by much older guys who are financially powerful going after girls in their 20s. That's weird. Yeah, but it's 1989. We're still supposed to judge the women in that situation. Unless the women are trying to sleep with teenagers, in which case, good for them, right? What was that movie we watched the other day? We watched Real Genius recently, and that's a problematic 80s movie. (laughs) Alright, for the child actors, uh, first and foremost, we have Jenny Lewis as Hannah Nettler. Jenny Lewis started out as a child actress, but she is better known to millennials as a singer-songwriter, first as forming Rilo Kiley in 1998, which ended up becoming a popular indie rock band if you're into, like, the Decemberis and Death Cab for Cutie and the Postal Service and Spoon and that kind of vibe. They fit in with those people. Lewis wasn't even the uh, only child actor in that group. Uh, guitarist Blake Sennett was uh, Pinsky on Salute Your Shorts. He was also a character in Boy Meets World, but I didn't watch as many uh, episodes of that. I like her performance in this for a, a child actress. I think she was pretty good. Yeah. Um, stuck her lines well. I like her repartee with um, with Long in particular. She's like, can't we spy on Dad in the morning? I love that part, yeah. <laughs> Lewis, while she has left her child actress life behind decades ago, she does speak fondly of True Beverly Hills whenever it's brought up to her. She, in fact, wore a True Beverly Hills uniform in the music video for her song, She's Not Me. Although she had a bunch of her actress friends also wear true Beverly Hills uniforms, but none of the child actors from the movie itself, which is a curious choice. Maybe they weren't available. Maybe. I mean, we know some of them went on to bigger and better things, I guess. (laughs) Alright, then we have Emily Shulman as Tiffany, Carla Gugino as Chica, as I already mentioned, Aquilina Soriano as Lily, Kelly Martin as Emily, Tasha Scott as Jasmine, uh, Heather Hopper as Tessa, Amy Foster as Claire, Audrey Lindley as Francis, Stephanie Beecham as Vicky, and yeah, that's it for the girls. Cleo and Jamie? Oh yeah, Tori Spelling is Jamie, which is also her film debut. And they were the rival girls. Yeah, they were rival girls. The Red Feathers. Yeah, the Red Feathers. The attempted murderers. (laughs) Who were egged on by Velda, who should have known better. (laughs) Really, the fact that she was surprised they betrayed her. It's like, yeah, you brought them up to do this exact thing. And apparently not read the rules the whole way through because, I mean, they should have known that they couldn't have finished uh, without the troop leader. Maybe they didn't consider her part of the team. They're like, no, we we voted her off when we left her in the ditch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Velda was just making up her own rules willy-nilly, so maybe they thought that that would fly. You know, what's interesting is that despite the really short running time and the fact that all the characters kind of have to be written in a broad way, most of them have a character arc. Like, one of them, the dad is a struggling actor who who can't get a role, so she can't afford to, like, pay the $10 or the $7.50 for the badges and so on, and you get a little bit where they're interacting with that. One of them, their parents forgot her birthday, and she has a breakdown over that. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I thought it was really, like, efficient feels like a mean way to say this, but it, I, I thought it was good, clean writing, um, the way they wove all of those little vignettes into um, Phyllis's character growth. Oh, I do think that it is very cleanly written in that, um, yeah, you can you can feel the axe change over like clockwork. You can see the bones in this. It is, it is very transparent that, in, in that fashion. Somebody just, like, took notes from Save the Cat. But, like, I don't say that to be mean, though, because it works. It feels very satisfying that this isn't a movie you put on to be challenged, right? This is a movie that you put on with snacks to laugh at the cheesy jokes, admire the fun outfits. Like, it's a feel-good movie. That bird dress. <laughs> I don't want to grind this all to a halt, but what what save the cat? Save the Cat is an infamous screenwriting guide that tells you how to write a movie, and it's all, like, very basic bitch-cliched plot points. Many Hollywood writers have lambasted Save the Cat, saying that it doesn't actually make sense in the course of writing movies legitimately. But the title comes from, you need to have the hero, as you're introduced to them, the protagonist or whatever, save the cat. If not literally rescue a cat from the tree, do something to put the audience on their side. So whenever somebody says save the cat in a filmmaking context, it means that you're just sort of like running into the cliches of your medium full on with no shame. Woo! <laughs> Making I, movies for Cheryl. I learned a thing! <laughs> Alright, then we have Shelley Morrison as Rosa. She's the maid. Yes, she is. <laughs> she also played the maid on Will and Grace and got a bit more to do on Will and Grace. She gets to have like little evil moments. And friendship. And friendship. Whereas with this, she gets to do the, um, we don't need no stinking badges because she's the only Latina woman and, you know, they wanted the quote Sierra Madre. She's, she's basically a, a Latina mammy. <sighs> You're not wrong. Okay, okay, so we got a third bummer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, release and reception. True Beverly Hills was lambasted by critics. Boo! Uh, there were lots of complaints about the story being a formulaic underdog plot, especially considering that the underdogs are ridiculously privileged rich girls in Beverly Hills. It's true. I, I read a very, very mean contemporary review in Variety, but like, we're supposed to feel sorry for these girls who, when the rain starts, they just go to the four-star hotel and watch Pee Wee Herman together. It's like, I agree with everything you said, but I still find the movie be charming and despite this oh yeah normally i'm like pro guillotine but this clearly is not based in reality this world so yeah. it's part of my suspension of disbelief that i don't want all of these rich people to suffer while almost everyone hated the movie there was modest praise here and there for long's performance uh, it was a box office failure. Uh, it had a budget of $18 million. It made $8.5 million. Mm. Like, see, as much as I do like this movie, I cannot imagine watching it in a movie theater. It it's reeks of the living room to me. That actually makes me think of an H-Bomber guy episode of Scanline where he talks about the advent of VHS and how that transformed filmmaking and, and how you watch movies because in a lot of instances, movies that are painful and awkward on the, on the big screen are a lot more accessible if you're just half watching it on a tiny TV in your bedroom or whatever. He used mall rats as an example of that. He was like, would you go to a movie theater to watch fucking mall rats? <laughs> <laughs> no, but if it's on TV, I'll hang around for half an hour. And, yeah. <laughs> and nowadays that's probably even more relevant with streaming. Yep. Mm. Uh, another one of his points is that um, low-budget horror movies work better on VHS because they're grainy and shitty and therefore the bad special effects look more convincing. Also, Alien is scarier on VHS because it's darker. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Troop Beverly Hills gradually grew an appreciative cult audience. Woo! 
often due to its use as inexpensive block filler, particularly on the Disney Channel. It was basically continuously running on the Disney Channel throughout the entirety of the 1990s. We didn't have the Disney Channel, though. I did on sleepovers. Back to back with Halloween Town. Yeah! And that weird Quince movie. <laughs> so it was the, uh, ch the children's equivalent of the Shawshank Redemption. We're just gonna play this all day and you're gonna love it. <laughs> Well, we have covered other movies on here that became... Clue. Yeah, Clue is one of those. <laughs> just because it was inexpensive to air it on basic cable, it was always on, and just people just got into it. Yeah, Clue is probably the first one I covered, and um, there are other examples of that. The, the Tom Hanks, Dan Aykroyd, Dragnet, which I can't imagine ever doing an episode on. Uh, Christmas Story. Christmas Story is one of those. Christmas Story might be the most infamous example. But yeah, True Beverly Hills, one of those. All right, that brings us to themes. Oh boy. Pack up your guillotines because we're not going to use them on these rich people. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting to that. But first, feminism. When reading, not contemporary reviews, but retrospectives written by millennials who grew up watching the movie and then became film critics, their perspective is a bit different. More than a few of them cite the film as something that you can view through a feminist lens. The main point that I kept picking up is that it is actually kind of empowering that True Beverly Hills is unapologetic about its girliness, because the girls and the women do not have to compromise or excuse their femininity in order to get ahead. I do not think that this was a conscious motivation of the writers, but I can see how you can re uh, read the film that way. Oh yeah, no, I love it. They're all unapologetically themselves all throughout, which is great. Phyllis isn't an object of ridicule for having very traditionally feminine tastes. Um, she's an object of ridicule for actual character flaws that she works on and grows from. It could easily be like a back-to-back -back with Legally Blonde. Yeah. Yeah, and like Legally Blonde, which I do think is a better movie overall, but still, the skills that True Beverly Hills pick up, it isn't something that makes them abandon what they were beforehand. It's additive. They are expanding upon who they are and adding things to themselves. I also like, too, that um, the tendency of girls to undercut each other is brought up and addressed, and it's considered, like, the right thing to not be that way, you know? Phyllis is horrified that Velda has brought the red feathers into her neighborhood specifically to ruin things for her children. One of the things that I liked, too, about Troop Beverly Hills versus the red feathers is if you look at the red feathers, there's no minorities, whereas Troop Beverly Hills is an inclusive little sisterhood. I, do I mean, in that 80s kind of like, we gotta check a box sort of way. But they aren't all blondes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's only one blonde. Box checked. <laughs> I do think getting to your earlier point, also the bit where Velda gets injured and True Beverly Hills considers abandoning her. <laughs> and then Phyllis is like, come on! <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you're right, I guess. Can we get a patch for this? <laughs> that brings me to another element of feminism. Girl boss feminism. Yeah. Because I can see True Beverly Hills as being a decades earlier kind of riff on uh, that and not exactly a critique of it. For those of you who um, are not familiar with this, uh, girl boss feminism is the idea that the system that we live in, the patriarchy, it isn't actually that bad. It isn't that it's corrupt and that the arbitrary social ladder encourages massive inequality. The problem is that not enough of the oligarchs at the top of our kleptocracy are women. And if we have more female CEOs and they're just as throat slitty as the men occupying the space, that's equality. 
Cheryl, your face is so good right now. <laughs> uh, clearly, Cheryl is one of the people who was unaware of girl boss feminism. Honestly, all I'm thinking of is every single office that I've stepped into in my job that is owned by a woman, and how much of the stuff in there says girl boss. I'm like, do, do people not know? <laughs> do people know? This is a thing. I didn't know it was a thing, but I'm like, there's like, there's material. Like, you buy paperweights and, well, like, scissors. The people that it's marketed to don't see it the same way Ryan is expressing it. Like, they really do think, like, girls in power, good. I just, like... They're, they're not in favor of the revolution. Yeah, yeah, ten years ago, Girl Boss was, like, thrown around like confetti. Uh, however, it was co-opted by multi-level marketing pyramid schemes, so now it has some stink on it in addition to the way I expressed it, which is very indicative of my perspective on the issue. <laughs> <laughs> but also, too, like, you're very close to the other thing that's on the posters, which is throw kindness around like confetti. So it was fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Girl Boss feminism encourages burnout, you know, working 70, 80 hours a week and trying to like maintaining social life at the same time but you can't so you just end up not sleeping and collapsing in on yourself but also if you manage to ascend to the heights definitely pulling up the ladder after you like Amy Comey Barrett. I don't know who that is. She is the Supreme Court Justice who's about to overturn Roe v. Wade in a few weeks. Oh I do know that is. I just blocked out her name because they don't need that in my life. <laughs> uh, anyways, on that note, last point that I wrote down is class warfare. I expect Sylvan has some words. I mean, again, this is a fantasy world. The poor people are very happy to serve their benevolent overlords. See the maid. Camp Chippewa. And our, our working class <laughs> people are from Culver City. Yeah, so... <laughs> That's our blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth people. Making them motion pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, this is very much the type of movie that, like, the stories that Hollywood tells about itself, where their struggles, you know, are universal struggles. And, yeah, no, it does not feel real enough to really critique any statements on class, because there are no poor people in this made-up world. <laughs> Yeah, it, it does kind of sting, that all being said, that the millionaire kids are supposed to be oppressed, and that one of them is fucking Ferdinand Marcos's daughter. <laughs> I mean, oppressed is too strong of a word. People are being mean to them. They're being bullied. Yes, but by their perspective, that is oppression. And neglected. There is definitely parental neglect going on. <laughs> but they make up for it by spending time with other people's children. <laughs> it all works out. Woo! Eh, found family is a thing. Alright, and uh, the last point I wanted to bring up while I was watching the movie, I didn't write it down, is the retroactive enshrining of films that were ignored in their heyday. Because True Beverly Hills is definitely one of those. I don't think anyone who panned that movie when it came out in 1989 would think that people would consider it to be some kind of a gem almost 40 years later. Drag queens. There's too much fashion for that not to have been, like, <laughs> absorbed into the gay culture. I do think that the a very, very 80s aesthetics are a big part of why people remember this film, in addition to just being constantly rerun on cable during the 90s. I mean, when I was a kid watching this movie, I legit had some context for some of the weird-ass dresses that they were selling me for my Barbies. I'm like, oh, that's where someone would wear that. It makes me think of that old cliche that history is written by the winners, which I can see where it's coming from, and you can find historical examples of that, but I do think that that's a little myopic. I think that history is written by the nerds, because they're the only ones who care enough. 
Like, the people who enshrine things as high art that add them to the artistic canon that later generations uh, end up revering, they're the ones who think about this shit way too damn much, which, you know, I'm speaking from experience here. All of those critics who hated Troop Beverly Hills, they weren't invested in it rising or falling one way or the other. The nerdy-ass film geek millennial girls who grew up watching this movie were invested in making sure that people cared about this, and that is why people care about it now. I mean, I was kind of, like, I did, again, we didn't have Disney Channel growing up, so I didn't know that it was constantly rerun for everybody. I had thought for the longest time that everyone really did forget about this movie that I used to watch at sleepovers at my cousin's house. And then I started seeing memes about it and the occasional article, retrospective or whatever, and I was like, oh, other people care about this too, cool. That's about the extent of it for me, but um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it's got, like, a community of people who like it. The memes are good. I do like the idea that eventually, if they do make another one, we'll have, like, 73-year-old Shelley Long just coming back and being the character again. <laughs> okay, but how much more fun would Phyllis be as an old lady? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she could be the one being like, I may be senile, but I know a good wilderness girl troop when I see one. I hope she still has that purple bathrobe thing. Yes, with the fox fur. Is Coach still alive? Craig T. Nelson? Yeah. Oh. He was in Incredibles too. Good for him. Well, I don't know. He kind of looked a little bit like, you know, somebody that doesn't take care of their health in this movie. <laughs> so I would be surprised if he wasn't around now. I think he's aging very gracefully. Good for him. He okay. had a shirtless scene and exercise equipment. Yeah, but he had like the like carny fat guy kind of muscle. No? Which is still muscle. Yeah, I know, but it's also like, you know, maybe he's got cholesterol buildup around his heart or something. I was, it was concern. It wasn't judgment. All right, I don't know him personally, but I think Craig T. Nelson is doing fine for a guy in his early 70s. Anyways. Stop laughing at me. I was worried. <laughs> That's the full extent of my you notes. You cannot tell somebody's health, especially of their organs, by looking at them. <laughs> Maybe I can. Okay, you're not the Russian psychic lady, and even the Russian psychic lady is probably a fraud. Anyways, that's everything in my notes. Is there there's some, anything that anyone would like to say about True Beverly Hills before we sign off? Beverly Hills, what a thrill. <laughs> We're not chanting with you. I'm not chanting. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time. You're doing it wrong if you don't.